Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, host of the RouterFlex podcast and founder and CEO of our day job recruiting firm, RouterFlex. We hope you enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast for updates and news. Finally, if you haven't already, check out the series of books we've published on hiring, interviewing, and overall career advice titled The RouterFlex Guide, available on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Most homeowners don't have the time or expertise to properly take care of their home, which causes costly issues to arise. That's where Cura Home Maintenance comes in. We're a full-service, routine maintenance company that was developed by a certified home inspector. Each quarter, we service our clients' homes following manufacturer's recommendations to properly maintain all the necessary appliances. We provide the materials and expertise to prolong the life of your property, creating a healthy and efficient environment for your family. From top to bottom, we'll maintain and service your home. To get started, we have a property inspection to determine what needs to be maintained, and a maintenance plan is created based on your preferences. From refrigerator coils to filters, vents, and drains, we do it all, and we do it well. Contact us today for your free routine maintenance inspection and never worry about your maintenance again. Bob Rourke, are you ready to rock and roll? Rider Flex podcast? Let's get it, man. <laughs> oh, for the audience, I just want everybody to know right now that the Rider Flex podcast probably does not exist without Bob Rourke. It's really, it's a, it's a, it's a true statement. I mean, you were the one that introduced us to podcasting, suggested that we did some, some podcasting way back. Wait, what year was that, Bob? It was like six years ago, seven years ago? A long time ago. Yeah. Why do you still look the same age? How do you, how do you not age? I, you know, I've used this gray hair rinse that covers up the dark roots. <laughs> oh man, you you seriously look the same. You look like you're like you know you're in your early fifties, like fifty one, fifty two. There you go. Keep talking. Keep talking. <laughs> we uh, do this all day. Yeah. Do you remember? So so yeah, I you interviewed me for the Business Leaders Podcast. Yep. Probably six or seven years ago, at least. And by the way, yeah, Bob does have his own podcast for the listeners. Let's get that out there right now. Business businessleaderspodcast.com that must have been yeah a long time ago and i'm trying to remember how we connected who introduced we, uh, us through uh, mark are you sure because i thought i thought i introduced mark to you could have been you know i'm not maybe through linkedin but what i remember is we were chatting and you guys have the record for being the fastest adoption and launch podcast I think we talked on a Thursday and you guys were up and running on Monday and I'm going, like, these guys don't let any dust settle around. No. But yeah, you guys start got going quick. Well, it was such a great idea. You know, for the listeners, everybody probably knows RiderFlex is a recruiting and, and consulting firm, recruiting and staffing. And your suggestion was for me to start giving advice, career advice, job interviewing advice. And then it, it just naturally flowed into me then interviewing executives and entrepreneurs, getting their tips around that. And then it just grew from there. So anyway, I just wanted to say right up front, thank you. Uh, but Bob is uh, 
what what we call the godfather of the podcasting and you can check his podcast out at business leaders podcast so be sure to do that but uh anyway let, let's uh, start personal man how, how are things give me give me the family update uh wife kids grandkids what, what's the latest share it with the listeners uh, the bride is still teaching tai chi so that's awesome she's like a decade into it and absolutely obsessed with it cool. so that's good cool. uh, uh daughter's doing extremely well in Denver with uh, digital marketing. Son is working out of Dallas. He's married, no grandkids yet. Um, the daughter is more from having a black belt going into CrossFit. And I got a text from son today saying he just uh, squatted 500 pounds or something. So I'm going to have to call, be polite when I see him next. And <laughs> I've got my new 17 month old bird dog sitting under my desk here at the office. So the bird dog will be going out in the field with me this fall. And so that'll be a lot of fun. So she's office dog comes every day. So, so you must've had it. You would, you have a little, do you have a long-term bird dog that, that uh, moved on to the next life and you got a new one. Is that what happened? Yeah. yeah I had one for 15 years, same breed. And we picked this one up, uh, you know, a year and a half. Or so ago, same breed, same breeder, whole bit. And okay. uh, yeah, Maddie is her name. So she's a field springer. And, ah. uh, Okay. Yeah. Very good. Very good. How, uh, how long have you been married, Bob? You don't mind me asking. I'm speaking up on 40 years this year. So you got, you got married when you were 10. <laughs> exactly right. You know, <laughs> yeah. My wife has a good sense of humor, obviously, you know, but oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, I came to Colorado from the deep South and stationed at Fort Carson as an army officer and said, you know, I'll be here four years and gone. Well, that was 19, that was a long time ago. And married a local gal. And here I am, you know, all these years later. And it's just really unusual, I think, for my plan was to live on a lake back in the south and do a lot of fishing. But mm. uh, Colorado is not a bad, bad second choice for sure. Were you from Tennessee originally or whereabouts? Yeah, I was born in Naples, Italy. My father was Navy. And then we moved all over the south, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, when I was a kid. And went to school outside of Nashville, a little school called MTSU. And um, then the Army had a plan for me. And after a stint at Airborne School and a couple other places, ended up at Fort Carson during the Jimmy Carter years. So how about that? How about that? So you got your degree and then went into the Army as an officer, as a, as a lieutenant, and then got a few promotions in there to captain? Yep. Ended up as a captain, stuck around for six years in reserves and kind of like a booster shot on why I left. I'd go back for two weeks and go, I remember now why I left. And I really left the military. It wasn't very entrepreneurial. You know, once you make captain, it was eight years to major. And I oh. said, well, that's too daggum slow for me. And, and so I rotated out and, you know, that started my entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, working for a couple of the folks, worked for Merrill for 20 years and Morgan for a few, and then started our own firm here. And so we've been doing this um, independent since 2011. So. Mm, well, let me, let me ask you, we were, so you were in the ROTC though uh, at Middle Tennessee State. Now, was that, was that you kind of following your father's footsteps? You wanted to go to the service. Was that driven by what your dad did for a living? Yeah, my dad was Navy. And so I, I actually, I had an opportunity for an ROTC Army scholarship. And I said, well, I'd really rather go Navy. And those days I wanted to be a, a flight surgeon or a surgeon. And so I talked to Vanderbilt, talked to some crusty NCO. And he said, nah, we don't take two-year transfer students up here, click. 
And I got a call back the next day from the head of the department said, we'd love to have you. And I said, too late, already signed on the ROTC for the Army. So I missed the Navy by one day. Really interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Very good. Was your, was your dad? So let's see. I'm going to guess your dad was born in the twenties. Am I, am yeah. I close? Yeah. He was a world war II vet, uh, served in the Pacific, uh, okay. air traffic controller. In fact, the intrepid, which is up in New York in the Harbor up there is the ship he served on later on. Oh, but really? Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's a little bitty aircraft carrier compared to the ones nowadays. But yeah, uh, he was an air traffic controller all his life. So, so. a teen, uh, 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 let's see, adolescent teenager during the depression, and then war, then a World War II vet. Well, th those guys, uh, different breed, huh? <laughs> I, I got supervised a lot. Good Navy NCO. Yes, <laughs> I got supervised a lot. You know, but uh, you know, he and I were really, really good friends, and so we did a lot of fishing all over the deep South. And we fished down in Okeechobee down in Florida and, and whatnot. And, and my mom died when she was really young in 78. Oh. And so uh, he was single for the last part of his life. And so we hung out a lot. So he was, it was a lot of fun to be around with. Um, uh, yeah. Nice guy. Cool. Well, yeah. what'd your mom, what'd, you, what'd your mom pass of? How old was she? She was uh 48 um, glioblastoma brain tumor. Yeah. Bummer. Oh, that's a killer. Oh, yeah. So he, so he never remarried, huh? Nope. Nope. I think, uh, once yeah. was plenty for him and, and yeah, he and he and mom got along. She was, she was a gem. So he just never found anybody else and he was unruly. So. <laughs> uh, well, were you a good kid? Like when you were in high school, I mean, was it, you know, straight A's by the book you do, you know, or was, did you get in any trouble? Did you do anything cool, Bob, anything fun you want to share? You know, I was, I was the new kid. I was in a different school every year after the sixth grade. And so I was new, slow and small. And in the deep South, that's a deadly combination. <laughs> you didn't play sports, you know, and this, that, you know, the thing I did do though, is I water skied. And, oh, okay. and so, you know, I tricked, jumped, barefooted, slalom skied, all that stuff. It's the one thing I could do as an athlete. Okay. And then right after high school, I gained four inches and 40 pounds, you know? And so, yeah, I got back real quick after high school, which, you know, but, uh, and then I, found I was good at water skiing. And I was a pre-med kid that made a D in organic chemistry, never made a D in my life, took it again, made a D again. <laughs> so it was trying to tell me something. And I am absolutely thrilled that I didn't go the pre-med route. Ah, uh, okay. So but you I did major, it. you did major in biology though, right? Biology and math. Yeah. What were you, what were you going to do with that, Bob? What was the plan? Oh, I, I'd worked at a local hospital uh, when I was uh -huh. uh, uh, in Tennessee as a teenager in the, we had a local surgeon in a small community hospital in Tennessee and he would narrate surgeries for me. And I worked in the, in there as an orderly when they had them and he'd do, you know, gallbladder removals and this and that and the other. And so he knew I was interested and, but I was going to go to med school. I wanted to take it and go and be a doctor in those days. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. Uh, I forgot to ask you siblings. Yeah. I got one sister. She's still down there, still lives right, you know, within 10 miles of where we grew up uh -huh. and, you know, she starts talking and the banjos go off. I mean, she has a very deep Southern twang. <laughs> cool. Still. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. Okay. So 
but you go to the service, you, you get out of the army after a nice run there as captain. How the heck with, with a biology degree and then your time in the army, boom, you go into uh, the financial industry, I guess, the investment industry, I don't know, wealth management, however you want to classify. How, how'd that happen? <laughs> well, it, it was a, it really a bad detour. Um, you know, I did, there was a company out of San Francisco called Career Seminars, and they were a recruiting firm for junior officers. And they introduced us to Procter & Gamble and Applied Materials and a bunch I of see. companies. So they were a placement service for us. I and see. I had a friend that was selling for a local firm, oddly enough, motorcycle parts, tires, tubes, plugs, helmets, chains, all that stuff. And okay. so he was making 50 grand a year doing that, working nine to two. And I was making like eight grand a year as LT, you know, and the captain. I said, oh, that sounds good to me. And so I took the job. I'd never sold anything. I owned one motorcycle in my life. And I starved for the first two years. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. And so oh. I worked there for two more years and finally figured out. But I could see the writing on the wall. You know, computers were coming on board and this, that, and the other. And, um, you know, I started reading after my first big tax bill. I got a wake-up call. And so I started reading Forbes and Fortune and Wall Street Journal and all that stuff every day. Uh -huh. And so I was really interested in it. And I got introduced to Merrill Lynch back in 87. Married now, married, married right in here. I had just, you know, we were married three years. I got hired by Merrill and I found out at the same time my daughter was on the way. Okay. All right. Just wanted to kind of get to, all right. Oh all yeah. Right. And in those days, if you didn't pass the, the licensing test, Merrill would fire you in those days. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I had oh, no oh. pressure whatsoever. <laughs> Is that not how it works now? You don't get fired. No, I, don't, don't... I don't know what I don't know what the rules are now. I mean, I've been a long way time away from them, so I, it may be the same, but I don't know that for sure. And wow, twenty what over twenty years there? Twenty one years? Twenty yeah, twenty twenty one years at Merrill left them in 08, Uh Went on a competitive hire to Morgan Stanley for two thousand eleven, and just said this is no longer for me. Uh, uh, you know yeah. the, the the corporate dance and structure was inconsistent with what I wanted to do. And so, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Now, see, if I was looking at your resume as a recruiter and I didn't see past Morgan Stanley, let's say I was just looking at U.S. Army, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, I would think big corporate red tape, huge organizations is where you thrive, right? And how did uh, the entrepreneurial small company thing come come to mind how'd that happen you, you know it's it's interesting you know i thought much like you go to merrill lynch a lot of people in suits you know i wore blue jeans and a pullover most of the time on the on the road when i was selling and you know came into merrill lynch and everybody wore a suit and i go god smart people big decisions and i thought that somehow or another the clients magically appeared well they don't you know and so you have to go get them yes. and so it you know i was doing the philo approach first in last out Mm. You know, so I'd get up there and first day at Merrill, I got there at like 4.30 in the morning and there was no one there. Except for the janitors. <laughs> no, nobody, nothing. I didn't have a key. I had to wait around until, you know, to get a key. So I got in really early and I just, you know, I worked. And so it was entrepreneurial in the fact that the harder you worked, the luckier you got. Yes. So I figured I'd outwork everybody. And so that's basically how that transpired. And you learned as you go. Uh, they had a corporate camp campus. They'd send you back for rudimentary things. But um, 
you know, you had the analyst and all that business. So it's really um, a marketing event to survive. Failure rate at Merrill as a new advisor is really high, or at least it was in the day. Oh, I bet it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that was entrepreneurial. And what I found is um, I got fascinated by business owners. You know, it just, you know, I, I admired them. I like what they did. I could see the parallels. Um, you know, like for me, I bought a storage facility back 20 years ago. Okay. Where, you know, wanted to have a business as well. You know, okay. I've had a couple of other businesses along the way. Um, you know, in the oil field, water treatment, and this and that and the other. Along with that, had a farm. Just got, in fact, I just sold the last of my farm last year. Okay. And so, yeah. So I've always been entrepreneurial. I see. Like okay. It. Okay. Yeah. All right. Very good. Yeah. Getting the experience of meeting a bunch of business owners. And of course, I guess a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners that were going through a transaction or were selling or cashing out or whatever, and then helping them and getting to know them. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that happened a bunch in your career, I'm assuming. You know, it, it did. And, you know, there was a pivot point for me, though. I had a, a really good friend that had a large company and he had received a a huge offer to buy the company out and you know it was like 80 million bucks for the company and was chatting with him and he said you know one of my kids said they want to run the company he said this is awesome he was pretty flattered about it and the kid took over the company this guy went and started running around the countryside doing all the things he'd not been able to do right and the economic cycle turned and mm. the company went bankrupt mm. in a short period of time and, you know, it's one of those things go, how the hell did I let that happen to a good friend of mine on my watch? He mm -hmm. wasn't a client, but I, you know, I didn't tell him to do a minority share carve out. I didn't tell him to do any of that stuff. And so at that point, I heard about a thing called uh, the Exit Planning Institute, and they've got a certified exit planning advisor designation. And so I went out and studied with those guys and got a certification and it changed my vocabulary entirely. I see. So for the business owner. And you start talking, you know, 80% of people's net worth that they're small business owners tied up in their business mm -hmm. on average. Right. You know, right. the, the stats are grim. Um, the majority of business owners that come to market when they want to sell their company have a job, not a business. Mm. Many of them don't transact. Mm. And, you know, after the sale, the ones that do make it to sale, they said roughly three quarters of those business owners within 12 months wish they hadn't sold. And have to go get regular jobs, <laughs> you know, or, you know, who they used to be is not who they're recognized for anymore mm -hmm. or the company, which was basically a child of theirs, you know, is being run differently mm -hmm. or not like they would do it. Right. You know, or, you know, like the wife says, I married you for better or worse, not for lunch, <laughs> you know, so that really changed what I was doing and how I approach things and how I talk to business owners and, you know, how do we help them get ready and then, you know, how do we take and help them afterwards, you know, to take and navigate post-sale? Because most of them are so busy selling their companies, mm -hmm. you know, that they don't have the time to think about stage three. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And most of them aren't like super savvy investors. Most of them, a lot of them weren't, didn't come from trust fund, family offices and things like that. So when they do, I'm guessing when they do sell, for a lot of them, it's the first time they've had real money to, to do well, something yeah, you know, and, and, you know, like for me, my experience, effectively, when I got competitively hired to Morgan Stanley, I effectively sold my book of business to Morgan Stanley, effectively. I see. Right. And I got to see the contract the evening before I left. And so they had hired 
hundreds, if not thousands of advisors. So they knew what to do. I and see. this was a one-off for me. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I've been on the side of doing a bad exit. And, you know, I know what it feels like. And you go in retrospect, that was, you know, uninformed or poorly, you know, poorly prepared on my part. And so, you know, with the business owners, you really look at them and, you know, I've talked to some guys that are really well known in our, in the exit world, uh, John Warlow, uh, he's got built to sell radio. He's got a podcast as well. I said, what's the biggest mistake business owners make when they transition? He says, being in a hurry, feeling like they need to do something upon sale, mm, mm. you know, and, and good. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. Is, are you, so let's talk about RS asset management, which you, Founded in 2011. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you have a co-founder? Or was it just yours? Yeah, or what? I had a co-founder. Yeah, he was he was with me at Merrill. We've been working together, geez, almost 20 years now. Okay, so you guys are still working together. You're, yep. you're your What's his name? Sean Solby. I don't think I've ever met Sean, but that's oh. okay. He's yeah. the race car driver in the practice. We have a race car in the practice too. Oh, okay. All right. Very. Is it just just you and him running it together? With you got a couple yep. of associates or? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And then we've got uh, an assistant that helps us out and keeps us squared away. And so we can, the culture is really good in that respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So yeah. I like, it. yeah. 20 started, started in 2011. So 20, 20, I'm sorry, 12 years, I guess, 12 years, yep. right? Is that, yep. Does that sound right? Yep. 12 years with the same co-founder. Good for you. Can you give us kind of the RS asset management, overview the, the the commercial the two three minute commercial 30 second commercial if you don't mind and before you do that rsassetmanagement.com for the listeners Correct. but um yeah give us the overview if you don't mind bob yeah you know for the practice you know it's it's interesting people say well what do you do and i go well, what are you trying to do and go okay tell me what you want to do and and for me i spend a lot of time just trying to figure out what's on their mind what do you want to do you know what's your revenue stream you know and then I put it all on a mind map and usually everything they have is on one single piece of paper and usually the first time they've ever seen it. So what we try to do is frame and quantify their vision. So, you know, it's basically um, we define what they're trying to do, decide on a course of action, implement it. And then we try to defend it all across the way, you know, whether they take into estate planning, which I don't do, you know, I don't do the legal work. You know, whether it's putting in an umbrella policy, which I don't do those to cover liability work. You know, there's a lot of things that we talk to them about. But, you know, as far as the investing side of the house, we don't really even get to that point until we figure out exactly what's important and, you know, goals and dreams and, you know, any of the advisors they may have. And there's a defined process that we go through for every client and we present it and go, did we miss anything? You know, and then we set a to-do list. You know, in many cases we go, you know, we have to de-risk your family first. You know, we had a, um, an opportunity lately where we had a, a family that sold a business and the property and casualty insurance for the business they sold was owned by the business they sold and not them. And they still retained ownership on the property. Mm. And so it looked like they weren't insured. I see. Stuff like that. Okay. You know, when you look at that and you go, I don't do that, but I mean, holy smokes, that's a big hole in your bucket if you're not covered because mm. okay. it was a big part of the family asset. So anyways, I mean, so that really ends up, it sounds rather nebulous, yeah. but I guess I'm professionally nosy. 
and I really try to understand. And, you know, we're not for everybody. And of course, everybody's not for us, you know, kind of thing. But, um, but I what is your target? What is your target? Is it is it family offices? Is it, is it uh, uh, small to medium sized business owners headed towards a transaction? All of the above? What what's your target client? You know, you know the target client. It, it seems to be running in the five to fifty million dollar proceeds of the sale crowd. Um, some of the business owners were fortunate to get a hold of before the sale, and go, okay, let's you know try, try to model what you're doing. And say, you know, the question that I always say is, or ask is, is it enough? And they go, I don't know. I said, what do you need? You know, and so you go through that process and go, yeah, it looks like enough to me, you know, net after tax. And so that's that business owner. Then we also get referred into business owners that are post-sale. Okay. You know, right, so, so you go through and you go, you know, you know, simple advice. Don't ever close a business on Friday. So you have to worry over the weekend for your wire. I mean, close on Sunday other than Friday, for God's sakes. I mean, and they all <laughs> seem to close on Friday, you know. Uh, is it is it um, is it the millionaire? What about what about a, a Fortune 500 executive, C-level guy that's making a million dollars a year that just has some cash in the bank, not going to sell a business, doesn't have his own business? Is that your client as well or no? We have those as clients as well. You know, and, and much of the process remains the same. You know, because they'll have a liquidity event if they have stock options on the other side, which most do. Okay. You know? And, you know, what we're really interested in is, you know, how do you take and go, you know, everybody talks about index return or, you know, you need to take and perform with the market. But what if the client doesn't need that kind of performance or what if that's not in their risk tolerance? Mm. And so you go, you design the program, you know, to fit what their vision is and what their requirements are, you know, and for the, the executive that's leaving, you know, they have same questions. Is it enough? Is it enough? Hmm. Is it enough? And then go, I always say, say to folks, what's your risk to ruin number? And I go, well, what's that? And yeah. I go, how far down can your portfolio go before you live differently? Good and question. Yeah. You yeah. know, and you go, well, you know, you go through and you go, it's this number based on this cash flow. And if you get to that number, I says, then there's something wrong. Mm. if you get to that number don't go past that number okay okay are you uh, for for layman's terms for i'm gonna ask you some commoner questions here so i apologize if i don't use the right language but i'm guessing this will maybe relate with the some of the listeners are you let's use myself for an example in, in rider flex are you helping let's say we're headed towards a sale are you helping me prepare the business for the sale of the amount of money and helping me get that ready along with preparing me for what I'm going to do with my personal take from that and putting those funds. Is it, is it both? You know, there, there are people much more qualified than I am that spend a lot of time working with consulting going, you know, you know, feed starve analysis, looking at, you know, do you have a business, you know, or do you have the right butts in the right seats? You know, those kind of things I'm conversant in it, but I don't do that. Okay. But I, yeah, when, right. when, when I get my, if I call you and say, my check's going to be 5 million, mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell to do with it. That that's when I'm getting Bob, Bob involved. Yeah. And if I had my preference, I would want to know beforehand, right. Okay. And go like, okay, this is what I think I'm going to get and go, all right, well, let's try to frame this 
and we'll do the whole interview process and we'll break it out. So this is what I see. Is this what you see? Okay. So you can go, okay, that matches up with my goals. Or it could very well be as go, I have no idea. I spent all my time running my business, you know, and, you know, I want to take and travel here. I want to own real estate there, you know, and, and go, okay, how does this all fit? Okay. And they have legacy properties and all this kind of stuff. And so you go, how do they fit? Very good. And then you can help me map that out. So I want to repeat, repeat back something here. So let, let, let's, let's say my personal take is, is 10 million, which yep. would be so awesome if I sold Rutterflex for that kind of money someday. But anyway, let's say I had 10 million, right? Yeah. Then I would come to you and say, okay, Bob, here's my cash. Here's 10. Let's say it's 10 million after tax. Okay. So here, here's my 10 million. Um, my wife and I could live on as little as $150,000 a year. If you just, just, just make sure I get $150,000 a year coming my way after tax. Um, that's my goal. And I don't want to have to work again. Boom. Can you, then you can help me lay out the plan based on those parameters. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, all you, what I try to do is go, okay, net after tax 150, you know, gross it up for taxes. Let's say it's Colorado and you're in 35 or 30% bracket and you go, okay, I need to have 30% more than 150. So you're running around 200 grand, right? Okay. 200 grand divided by 10 million is 2%. So my money has to make at least 2% or more a year. Yep. 2% net. Which should, that's doable, right? I mean, that's not it, hard. It's it's doable today for sure. If you, <laughs> you know, if you look two years ago, you know, when you're in the treasury market, you know, what was it? You'd go to a bank and you'd see a 1% CD for 10 years. You know, yeah. go like, well, that's an IQ test. No, you know, but, uh, but you know, nowadays, you know, T-bills are north of five. Okay. And so it would be very, for somebody like that in a hypothetical situation, you know, what, what we're told by regulators, you got to talk about the courses of action, you know, corporate bonds, money, market, treasuries, stocks, all the various things. And you go, do they fit your risk parameter? So each person is an individual sport in that respect. You know, so in the disclaimer world, this is not meant as a you know, investment recommendation or that other stuff, but you can go through and establish the rate of return required. And then you I go, see. okay, so let's say in your case, you know, I need 150, right, net? And you go, but I said, well, how much real estate do you own? What's it cash flow? And you can yeah. say, well, I own a couple yeah. pieces of real estate and it's cash flowing 50 grand a year. Mm-hmm. I said, so is the 150 exclusive or inclusive of the 50? Okay, yep, gotcha. All right. You know, and then you start working backwards and pretty soon okay. you kind of go, it'd be really hard to mess this up. And are you the guy, and I and I know these are like very uh, 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 low-level questions, so I, I, I apologize. But um, since this is not a financial podcast, I'm guessing we'll have some just regular Joe listeners. So I want to ask these questions. Are you also the person that says, okay, here's where we're going to put the money and this is what we're going to do with it. And then as things move along, you're turning dials, you're moving stuff, you're calling me saying, hey, by the way, that... We had this much in gold or silver, and I'm going to now. I'm going to move it over here. I'm going to do this. You're you're constantly managing it after that. Is that how that works? Correct. Yeah, we okay. we take in we buy research from a number of research firms. Okay. You know, and we have a lot of the stuff that we've developed internally. You know, and so you know the the notion at retirement. This will be heresy. I'm thinking. You know, folks will say, well, you know, if you got 40 years, you know, this will work out really well. And I'm going like, well, I'm an optimist, but I don't think I got 40 years. <laughs> you know, 
And so, you know, for me, I've been around since 87. You know, we've seen a lot of different cycles. You know, the, the dot-com crash in 2000, the great financial crisis, you know, in 2008, COVID crash in 2000, whatever it is we got shaping up right now. And, you know, the market cycles. Sometimes you need to have more exposure to various asset classes and sometimes less. Okay. And so we make sure that we understand how much risk you can tolerate. You know, like the standard question, well, what's your risk tolerance? 10%. Okay. So if you have 10 million bucks and you're down a million bucks on Tuesday, you're okay with that? If the, answer, if the answer is no, well, then 10% is not your number. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Is, part, is part of the investment strategy real estate as well, or you stay away from that? I don't do physical real estate. I do not. Okay. Okay. All right. I, I so mean, personally, okay. personally, yes, but professionally, no. It, any reason why is that like a specialty kind of arm of yeah, it? That's, you know, for, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a real estate license. You know, it's not my, you know, it's like I don't do brain surgery on the weekends either, and everybody's relieved. <laughs> you know, but for for that, um, you know, I can comment on it. You know, and say, you okay. know, this is this is the percentage of your own net worth. You know, mm -hmm. pretend. That your allocation model suggested you wanted to own 20% of your 10 million in real estate. And you go, okay. And you look at it in you know X number of years down the road, you go, it's now 30% mm. of your portfolio. Mm. I said, mm. are you comfortable mm. having that allocation to real estate 10% more than, you know, 50% more than you set out? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if it's not, then you go, okay, you everybody has one or two pieces of property that don't perform. It's like they have a black cloud over them. Yeah. Whatever those are, that would be the candidate for trim. Okay. Okay. Very good. And are your, I apologize. I don't know how this works. Are, are you just paid a, how, how are you paid? How do you make money? We are paid a flat fee. So, <laughs> you know, we, we typically pay up to 5 million bucks. We charge 1% and that's everything. Trading, custody, communication, research, all a little bit. If it gets over five million, we're at eight tenths of one percent. It's typically paid quarterly. Okay. You know, so it's eight tenths per percent paid quarterly. It's two tenths per quarter. Right. I see. So, so if you increase the value of my portfolio, that's a chance for you to make more money too. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like the ad on TV. We do better when our clients do better. <laughs> right? And you know, and conversely, we do poor, you know, less well when our clients don't do well. And so we're, right. we're on the same sheet of music. We don't get paid for how many times we turn it over, you know, we, are, so we don't get, yeah. I don't do commission business. I just don't. What percentage of your clients are people that have recently come into money and need a wealth manager for the first time versus they're pissed off at their current guy they're using for money and they want to switch to you. You know, the, the, the pissed off guys usually come in cycles. You know, right after a big decline in the market, they're pissed. <laughs> you know, they, the the typical, you know, I got my letter from my advisor saying who could have seen it coming and we apologize. But if you hang on, it'll come back, <laughs> you know, and that's usually when you get those folks, um, you know, here in the past five years, there's been a lot of business owners that we are working with and it's a direct result of the tragedy in that family that I described earlier. I mean, it's, it's as bad an event for that family and their employees that I've ever seen. It's just the family doesn't talk. I mean, it's dysfunctional. Um, they work gener a generation to get it done. 
And so for me, it's kind of like a mission statement. You know, a lot of these folks out here do not know that they have a job. They think they have a business. <laughs> that's such, a great, that's such a great line. That's such a good one. They don't know. I have, a, I, have a, I have a really close uh, mentor of mine that I used to uh, work for, work with and uh, could have sold, could have sold for about 40 million. And then I think it was less than eight years later, business shut down, filed bankruptcy and lost, lost it all and just shut it down and got zero. And, uh, when I meet them for lunch or breakfast or whatever, it's still, you know, it's a very deep, painful conversation. And, and what's, what's, what's interesting about it is they're still okay. Like, like, like they still have money, right. They're not, they're not like homeless or anything. Like they're still fine. Cause they did well before that, but just having to live with knowing that they should have taken that offer and didn't it. Oh man. Yeah. You know, and, and I think for the business owner, you know, you're really close and emotionally tied to the decision process, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as an outsider, you could go in there and, you know, for lack of a better term, pot shot, you know, you go like, well, what about this? What about that? You know, have you considered this? And, you know, here are different ways to consider exit. And, you know, for the, the standard kind of joke in our industry, what's a, you know, a rich person not want to be is this poor again. You know, and I grew up as a Navy NCOs kid. Yeah, I mean, right. We yeah, not a lot, not a lot of money, not a lot of money floating around at your house. No, you know, and and you know, bought my first car by mowing yards. You yeah. know, I, and in fact, I still mow my yard. It reminds me. That's a good idea. Oh, I like that. I like that. Speaking of that, uh, not to get too personal, but you, I'm assuming you could retire right now if you wanted to and not work. Why are you still working, Bob? I love what I do. You just love you it. Know, huh? I, yeah, I like the people I work with. I mean, you know, I can only hunt and fish so much. <laughs> you know, and so for me, you know, like I'm I think next year I'm gonna remote the practice to Alaska for a month and Florida for a month and just operate from there and fish. That's great. You know, um great. I'm you know, I'm sitting in my office with my bird dog under the desk. I've got a pair of blue jeans on, cowboy boots. Love it. And, you know, and uh, you know, I'm down here all the time. It fascinates me. That's good. That's good. And keep, Hey, keeps you young, right? Keeps you young. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to keep up with your clients. You know, I've got some pretty bright clients, so I've got to run a little faster than they do. And so I get up earlier than they do typically. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, I tell my wife, so they're going to haul me out of here feet first. Uh, uh, let me, Hey, speaking of hunting, by the way, have you been this year? Do you have a tag or what what do you got going on? I I bird hunt mostly. And so season I shoot out at a hunting club east of town here. Oh, okay. 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 No elk, no, no elk, no moose. You don't doing any of that? Not, not this year. I've, you know, I've moved in Canada and elk hunted down in New Mexico and, you know, and, but I like watching the dogs work. Yeah, yeah. Right. You, yeah. What, what, you, you don't want to cut up a uh, hundred pounds of meat and pack it on your back eight miles through the forest. And you, you no, that don't sound fun. <laughs> I've done that before. All the fun is done when you shoot. <laughs> For sure. uh, come on, Bob, you want to do that, right? You want to go back five trips, haul it to the ATV, then drive it to camp and then get, try to get back to the site before bears on it. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, I, I would do Canada again. I mean, that's, I fished uh, or hunted up there for moose and I fished in Brazil. Oh, and cool. 
Brazil for peacock bass is the furthest away from civilization I've ever been. And Canada was next to that. And it's pristine out there. It's a real gift to be able to go. Yeah, yeah. that's great. That's great. Yeah. I, have, I have a lot of, I'm not a hunter, but I grew up in Oklahoma. So I was all around it with my family and stuff, you know, and, uh, so, and I, as you know, I go, uh, uh, camping and hiking and Jeep trail riding up in the mountains here in Colorado and Wyoming as much as I can. So I always see hunters this time of year, you know, they're, they're, they're around up there. Uh, there's this real, there's this very interesting transition for the listeners that aren't familiar with the area in the summer, you have the families and the ATV riders and the, and the RVs for the, the summer campers. And then right when school starts, it, it is almost like an immediate switch to hunters. Boom. That's it. You might see a family camping with kids, but rare you it's hunters from that point forward. Uh, except for me, I go up and I'm with the hunters. Now, when I go up during that time of year, Bob, I'm super quiet. I try not to, mm-hmm. I don't want to mess them up. You know, right. Yeah. I don't want to, cause they get, they, they, they get, they get irritated if you're, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, you know, particularly, you know, for, I remember the first time I really did elk hunting in Colorado, I hiked into this area and I was way up there and I got up there early in the morning and first yeah. light, I look right across the draw. There's a guy looking at me through a scope across the thing. And I'm thinking, yeah, uh, I'm in the wrong place. Yeah. By the way, I have a cool little story for you uh, from last weekend. So I was in Medicine Bow, uh, by Medicine Bow Peak in Wyoming. Uh, for the listeners, that's southern Wyoming, right near the state line for Colorado. And I was doing some camping and mountain biking. And I was mountain biking on what I would call roads that are okay to do it without pissing off the hunters, if you know what I mean. I wasn't getting too far back in there to, to make them mad. But anyway, the interesting, interesting story, I was about five miles in, hadn't seen anybody for the day, not very many people around, not as many hunters as usual, by myself. And Bob, I came across a fire pit that was trashed. People had left trash in. And I just, I don't know about you, but I get so furious. I, I just it really just does something to me, you know? Uh, and I'm always, I'm always saying, okay, thank you God for not letting me see that person do that. Because if I had, uh, Kim might be bailing me out of jail. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'm sitting here staring at this trash pit, but I was on my mountain bike and I was away from camp. So I didn't have a bag. I didn't have a trash bag or whatever. Cause normally if I'm in my Jeep, I'll just pull over and bag it up. Right. I'm sitting there and I'm pissed. I'm taking a picture of it and I'm thinking to myself, okay, what, how am I going to get this trash out of here? I was thinking, well, maybe I can just stuff it all in my pockets or whatever, but I, I didn't have enough room. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'm just fuming. Anyway, make a long story short, the truck comes up this logging road, super thin, narrow, rocky logging road, right? Going super slow. I knew it was hunters. They get up right next to me. They're in their gear. And I, I could tell they hadn't seen the fire pit yet, but because they were concentrating on me and they pull up right beside me. And I said, hey, you guys don't happen to have like a trash bag or something on you, do you? And I looked down over at the fat fire pit when I said that. And Bob, I shit you not, all three of those hunters got out of their truck immediately. Mm-hmm. All three of them got out. One of them grabbed a trash bag out of the back and they all came over and all four of us were picking that fire pit up. I mean, without hesitation, they were out of that truck within seconds. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know, this, this, these are, these are good people right here. Like these are the, these are these, these guys respect the area, respect the territory. 
and they were just like me. They were they were so mad. <laughs> you know, it's it's a privilege to get to get up in the high country. Yes, and yes. you know the, the hunting is the excuse. You know, and like we were talking about, after you shoot, the fun's done. Yeah, you know, but you know, you get up and it's quiet, and you know, you may be sitting there, and there'll be a squirrel that'll come down, or you'll see a turkey, or you'll see some other wildlife, and you know, you get to reconnect. And you know, there's a lot of psychological studies and stuff that talk yes. about how nature is restorative and healthy and good for you. you. You know, like for me, when I go bird hunting, I don't care if I kill a bird. Yeah. I want to watch the dogs. I go watch this, the dog show. You yeah. know, and and same thing for hunting and. For a lot of the folks, you know, that have not grown up around that culture, you know, you watch the hunting shows and there's some guy fist pumping, killing something out of a deer stand over a cornfield. And I'm going like, well, that ain't exactly it for me, but, you know, good on them for being out. But it's it's a tradition. The the ranks of hunters are shrinking, which is yes. unfortunate. But, you know, you see the folks up there in the high country, by and large, they'll take in, you know, you won't leave it better than you found it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Pick up stuff along the way. Yes. You know, and, you know, the best mark up there is nobody knew you were there. It, one more thing on this topic. Isn't it interesting, too, when you're up in the high country, as you, as you were mentioning, isn't it interesting how when you see a person, everybody waves, everybody's friendly, everybody says something. As soon as you come down the mountain into population, that stops. <laughs> well, you know, you have common ground if you're up there. Yeah. <laughs> that's You right. know, and then you get back in the city and you don't know, and, and that's right. unfortunate. You know, yeah. but I've I've hunted, and for as long as I could drag a gun behind me, I think I was a little boy with a, you know, with the the little BB gun as a kid. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I grew up in the South, so that's no surprise. Not yeah, not yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for sharing that. I didn't I didn't want to uh, didn't mean to go down a rabbit hole on on it, but uh, what we're really talking about here is good people and just respecting nature and respecting the things around you. Because if you do that, if you do the right thing, it's amazing how Good karma will usually come your way most of the time, right? You know, I saw a statement the other day. It says, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm. And so if you think about, you know, you're a good steward of the people you work for, the people you place and the businesses you serve. And you think about, so can you imagine being a good steward there and they follow you up in the mountains and you're throwing stuff out your car window and they go, there's a disconnect, Right. And so you think about, you know, you're here serving, you're not here for long, you know, and you take care of, you know, the resource and your resource could be, you know, high quality C-suite individual, you know, it could be the company that's looking for help in the, you know, and you, you go, I'm, I'm here to take care of the quote troops, you know, like for me in the military, you know, it was like, take care of the troops, you take care of them, they'll take care of you. And that's how it works. That's right. The same thing for you. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I think that's a good place to wrap up right there, Bob. I think uh, good stuff. Uh, For the listeners, one more time, rsassetmanagement.com. Also, be sure to check out the Business Leaders Podcast. And if you are interested interested in being a guest on the show, I'm sure there's probably a connect button or a contact button there somewhere, right, Bob? Yeah, you know, and and the thing that I paused my podcast for a while because I felt like I was going through the motions a little bit. Okay. So what I'm really heading toward now is I want to take and start talking to the business owner that sold somewhat recently. And I'm interested in understanding their journey, their concerns, you know, and, and their aha moments again, you know, what did they do? How did they approach it? What were, what was successful? There are some folks that do it really, really well, 
Yes. There are some that do really poorly and, you know, kind of like to, to get their stories out to help the other business owners. So that's going to be the, the group of folks that I'm going to be trying to talk to okay. know, in the future. Yeah. Very good. And Bob Rourke also uh, on LinkedIn. And if you search for Bob Rourke and there's a million of them, just try the greater Colorado Springs area. He's that good looking guy with the silver hair. You'll see, you'll see him there. That'll be, that's the profile you need to click on. <laughs> Perfect. Good looking uh, guy. I like it. Bob, Bob, thanks for being on the Riderflex podcast and sharing your, your journey. I really appreciate it. You know, it has been way too long. And, you know, again, uh, of all the folks out there, you guys have just killed it in the podcast space. I'm really proud of the success that you guys have had doing it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Uh -huh.